Well, I have a bit of a confession. Some of you won't think it's much of a confession, but um, others are going to be deeply offended by this. I don't like to fish. I like to eat fish, but I don't like to fish. Tina, on the other hand, she enjoys fishing. Last year, she even got a fishing license just in case we would find ourselves at some friends at a lake with a boat and a fishing rod, uh, then she could, you know, kind of fish guilt-free. Um, but I got picture proof that I like to eat fish. The picture on the left is the before picture, and the picture on the right is the after picture. Um, it wasn't that good. I'm just telling you that. But I've gone fishing before and had the best meal of my entire life. That time was about 12 years ago. I still remember it well. Tina and I were part of a group of, of uh, pastors and ministry leaders that... Um, you can actually blank that out because it's kind of disgusting, I think, to, to keep looking at. Um, but we were, we were part of this group of ministry leaders that came together for uh, an 18-month intentional journey. And one of the experiences that the men of this group shared was a fishing expedition. And so we were paired up and sent out and told that we won't eat lunch until we have caught lunch. You see, eating fish is a good motivation for fishing. But I didn't catch any. My partner didn't either. It was probably my fault. But the problem is that you can do all of the right things when you're fishing, but you can't somehow will a fish onto your hook. Now, thankfully, some in our group did very well, and as I said, we had one of the most amazing, incredible fish meals we've ever had. And I got a couple of pictures to prove this, and that's me up in the the second from the top left. There's our catch of fish on the table, and our guide literally filleted them right there, is that the right word? And, uh, And... breaded them, and fried them up over an open fire. It was absolutely incredible. Well, this morning we're going to talk about some fishermen and fishing and fish. You see, we're just getting started on a new series of messages called Walking with Jesus. The Gospel of Mark asks and answers three very important questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do I respond to him? And in the first 13 verses, we were introduced to John the Baptist and to Jesus. And today, we're going to be introduced to four fishermen who responded to the call on their lives to make Jesus Lord. You see, John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way for Jesus. Now we discover that he has been arrested and he's thrown in prison. And so in a sense, he's out of the way, he's been removed, and Jesus now takes center stage in Mark's gospel. Now, it may be helpful for us to know that there's about a year of time that takes place between verse 13, where Pastor Adam ended up, and verse 14, where we're picking it up this week. But I want to look at this in just under two headings this morning. The one is, first is the message of Jesus, and then the second is the mission of Jesus. But first, the message of Jesus. So, Jesus had a message to proclaim. It wasn't all just go around and be nice and do nice things and heal people, but he had a message to share with the world. And verses 14 and 15 provide a great summary of this message. It's a clear announcement of the gospel message. And this is how Mark is choosing to introduce Jesus to us. Jesus steps up 
and he speaks God's words, proclaiming and declaring the good news. And so as Diana read in verse 14, it says later on, after John was arrested, and so he's off uh, out of the picture, Jesus then goes into Galilee, which is around the Sea of Galilee, and there's probably like 30 small villages around what is really a lake. Um, and there he preached the good God's good news. Verse 15, the time promised by God, this is what he said, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So in that one verse is really a summary of the general teaching of Jesus. And so I want to just look at those first, at that phrase, those four phrases a little bit more, a little closer, and to see what they might share with us today. First phrase is just, the time promised by God has come at last. And so all that John, John the Baptist had prophesied has now become a reality. Time is fulfilled. Mark has already presented Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophets often spoke of the future kingdom ruled by a descendant of King David that would be established on earth and exist for eternity. In 2 Samuel verse 7, 12 through 13, we read, When your days are over, he's saying this to David, but when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in a sense, this is kind of like a double prophecy in that it it predicts the birth and the work of Solomon, David's son, who ultimately builds a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. But the forever kingdom that Samuel references is fulfilled only in the Messiah. And as Matthew opens up his gospel with these words, he says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there are hundreds of more prophecies that are fulfilled from the Old Testament in the person of Jesus. You see, Mark has already helped us to understand that Jesus could identify with sinful human beings without sinning, and he was the heaven-declared Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah had come to break the power of sin and to begin God's personal reign on earth, and it was all in God's perfect timing. And now was the time. Jesus had come, and his coming marked the beginning of God's plan of redemption. So Jesus' message begins, the time promised by God has come at last. Then he says, the kingdom of God is near. You see, when speaking about the kingdom, we use this word a lot. We sung about our king this morning, but we're referring to God's rule and reign over people's hearts and lives. And since the time has come and the kingdom is near, God's rule is being established. This is now becoming a current reality. God's kingdom is represented in the very person of Jesus. In a previous equip class called God's Big Picture, Pastor Adam taught about the entire storyline of the Bible and used this theme of the kingdom of God to show how all of the different parts of the Bible fit together. And in every major section of the Bible, you discover that the Bible speaks of God's kingdom. And it speaks of God's kingdom in the context of God's people, in God's place, and under God's rule and blessing. And it changes in each segment of the Bible. 
And now Jesus coming out and declaring and saying what he's saying here in Mark, he was in fact proclaiming the kingdom and that God's rule was in the hearts of his people. It will eventually result in a perfected kingdom that we read about in Revelation 21, right? Where there's no more tears and no more death and, 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 and no more illness, no more sickness. It's this perfected kingdom now. A new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom then ultimately in all of its fullness. But Jesus now is saying that the kingdom is now near. Because he's now on the scene. You see, Jesus wasn't just some good moral teacher. We need to see him, friends, as the king of the universe. He's the king of his kingdom. He's the ruler. He is Lord. And so we say he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And we have an opportunity to bow under his lordship. And so as the Lord, he has the right to call us then to repentance And that's the third part of his message. He says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins. This is the message of Jesus. And it's often a message that we we might not even associate with Jesus sometimes because it seems so direct. But he is being clear and direct. It's a summary, as I said, of his teaching. But he's very clear about this need for repentance. Pastor Adam last week defined repentance and sin so well, right? Repentance, we have to remember, is a change of our mind. It's a change of the way that we think. You could also say that in a sense that it's a change of heart. It's a change of direction. It's a, a turning away from something and a turning to. And throughout the New Testament, whenever you see the reference to repentance, it's always ultimately referring to a comprehensive change of one's orientation toward following God. Right? So, so, so if you picture this, if, 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 this is bad, but let's say God's over here and I'm doing my own thing and I'm heading in this direction, repentance says that I now turn and I align myself with the ways and the will of Jesus, of God. And it's closely tied to sin. Because sin indicates a lack of conformity to divine standards. It's missing the mark. And God has set standards for what is absolutely best for us. And when we miss those standards, we call that sin. So repentance then does not mean that we somehow feel sorry for our sin, that we have some regret. Sorrow does in, in, in no way equal repentance. There should be sorrow over our sin, but, but sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. It's not until we change or change, or it's not until we turn or change our mind and align our hearts with God's. Let me put this another way. Repentance happens when we encounter Jesus in such a way that the control center of our lives is turned over to Him. Because He is Lord. Because He is King. And he will then ultimately rule and reign in our lives. We were, it is as if we hand him the keys to our life. And so all of the hopes and the dreams and the ambitions that we might have had, we give them over to him. And that's not easy. Because by nature, we're self-centered. We want what we want. I want what I want. And you're telling me that I, 
I need to turn and surrender that to Jesus? It's hard. And the reality is that we can't make this change ourselves. And so Jesus adds really the, 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 the caveat to all of this when he says, believe the good news. That is to put our faith in Jesus because that's where it all starts. Without that kind of believing faith, there's no repentance, there's no change because it's only when I understand who Jesus is when I understand what he did for me on the cross, when I understand that he gave his all for me, only then can I turn from everything that represents self and orient myself toward following him. This was the apostles' message as well. Peter preached in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. He said, repent and believe. No doubt he had heard Jesus preach that same message many times before. Now please don't understand, I'm not suggesting in any way that we are saved by faith and repentance. It is by faith alone that we are saved. But what I am saying is that repentance repentance is a vital part of believing. And so Jesus comes with this message. The time promised by God has come at last. I'm here. The kingdom of God is near. I'm going to establish this rule and reign over people's hearts and lives. And therefore, repent of your sins and believe the good news. Friends, becoming a follower of Jesus means simply this. That we turn away from our self-centeredness and our self-control, and we turn our lives over to Jesus' direction and his control. And if we say that we believe in Jesus and then still do whatever it is that we want to do, we've misunderstood a believing faith. You see, to believe in Jesus is to accept that it is a, that it is a call to radical discipleships. Discipleship. Friends, do we understand this? It's super important. Because if you think that because you raised your hand at the end of a service sometime, or maybe you walked an aisle, or even prayed a prayer with your mom when you were little, and because of all of that, you call yourself a Christian, but there's absolutely no transforming life change, no ongoing practice of repentance and a continual reorientation toward following God, then it shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised if we're missing out on the full and abundant life that Jesus came to offer us. Far too many people, they've invited Jesus into their lives, but he's taken a back seat while they continue to remain in control in the driver's seat. It's like having the insurance policy, the, the pink card in the glove box. He's there in case something really bad happens. Uh, I shouldn't quote songs that I don't know very well, but somehow Jesus takes the wheel, comes to mind. Are there any Carrie Underwood country fans? Okay. It's a terrible song. Um, just kidding. But what's the story about? She talks about, well, I, I think it is this, that, you know... She hasn't really been following Jesus and she's got a baby in the car and she's on an icy road and she spins out of control and she prays Jesus take the wheel and, you know, miraculously saves her in that time of crisis. Um, 
But you know what? It seemed like there was a bit of a spiritual reawakening then where it's like, you know what? Yeah, Jesus, I do want you. I do want to follow you. You take the driver's seat. The problem is, and I see it in myself, man, I want to be in control. And to that, Jesus says, repent of your sins. Believe the good news. See, when we understand this message that Jesus preached, this is a summary, and you're going to hear it versions of this over and over and over for the next few months. But he came, and he came to establish his rule and his reign in our hearts and our lives. That his death on the cross was not just for eternal life, but for abundant life. And that we demonstrate our faith and our belief then when we simply live our lives under his lordship. Simply put, we follow him. Because he's now sitting on the throne of my heart. He's in the driver's seat. And that's exactly what we see when Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him. So that's the message of Jesus and then the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus was, in fact, to proclaim the message that we just reviewed. And the impact of this message is seen in verses 16 through 20. And it's a historical record of that day. And what we know about Mark's gospel is that he gathered eyewitness accounts People who were alive during the time of Jesus and they told them about their experiences with Jesus and the events that they witnessed. And his primary source was in fact Peter. And so can you sort of imagine with me a little bit this morning maybe how this unfolded? You know, Mark meets up with Peter for coffee, paper and pen in hand. And he says, you know, hey, you you said something once about the day that Jesus called you and Andrew and and, and how did that go down again? I'd like to write that down. And Peter says, hey, don't forget James and John too. He says, oh yeah, tell me that story again. And so Peter starts. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw me and my brother Andrew throwing a net into the water. For we fished for a living. That's what we were. We were fishermen. And Jesus called out to us, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. We knew what he meant. And we left our nets at once and followed him. And Mark says, whoa, 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 stop right there. You mean to tell me that that Jesus just walked up to you on the beach and, and invited you to follow him and you just immediately got up and left? Yep, that's what we did. Well, like, what about the practical things? What did you do with your fishing nets? We left them. That's amazing. What about James and John? What did they do? Well, a little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, and they were repairing their nets. You know, they were getting prepared for the next day of fishing. And he called them at once. And they also followed him leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So James pauses, looks up from his paper, and he says, Peter, tell me, what is it about Jesus that you would just give up everything to follow him? Peter responds, well, first of all, we had heard his message. You know, 
He repeated it over and over. The time has come. The, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe. He, he taught with such clarity. He had this authority. And when he called us to follow him, he looked at us, you know, kind of like the way a mother looks at her son when she asks him to get up and help her carry the groceries into the house. And he doesn't move. He's like, well, what were you waiting for? Come on, chop, chop. Let's get with it. And so we went. Well, I also quickly updated my social media profile. You know, follower of Jesus, former fisherman, now a fisher of men. Mark is just dumbfounded, I think. Says, I still can't really wrap my mind around that. And you're saying that the same thing happened with James and John? Yes, but, but their situation was a little bit different. Their dad, Zebedee, was right there with them. You see, they had quite the operation going, these guys. James and John were partners in the family business, co-workers. They even had additional hired men. It was a going concern. <laughs> you should have seen the look on their faces when they saw James and John kiss their father farewell. Just totally dumbfounded. They, they couldn't even believe it. I mean, really, why would you walk away from the family business? This was your livelihood. This was your, this was your retirement. And Mark looks at Peter and says, So, Peter, why would you? Why would you walk away from financial security? And he says, Listen, Jesus is the Son of God. By following Him, we were accepting His authority. He has an authority over our lives, you know, so I simply couldn't stay. He placed a call on my life. He wanted me to be part of the group that He was putting together, a group that would pursue this calling of fishing for men. And He was going to train us and use us to draw others into following Him too. And how else could I live like him if I didn't walk with him and follow him every day? Just as Jesus 2,000 years ago invited four fishermen to follow him and fish for men, they did it. Their successors did it. And down through the generations, many of us responded to the exact same call. He calls us to follow him as well. Friends, is there a cost to following Jesus? You better believe there is. Because if we truly understand what it means, it means that we're going to turn away from our way of life so that we can walk in the Jesus way. And being a disciple of Jesus means leaving everything behind in order to follow him. And it means making a commitment and then living out and having that, that, that commitment impact all of our future choices and decisions. Friends, it's a radical message in a world in which we are taught that I am the center of my own world. And Jesus comes and says, 
Go ahead and live that way. But it's not my way. It's not what I intended. So friends, the good news is that Jesus made a way. So we can follow him. We can turn turn to him and follow him in obedience. And so what are some of the responses that we need to make this morning? Not surprisingly, with two points, I see at least two major responses, and there's many others that might follow. But I want you to notice, even in this story of the calling of these first disciples, just the immediacy of their responses. They responded at once, immediately. They didn't take time to ponder it and weigh the costs and write down the pros and cons of following Jesus. They understood that he had an authoritative call on their lives, and they submitted to that. So how do I respond to the message of Jesus? How do I respond to the message of the good news? Do I understand that he gave his life and conquered death so that I wouldn't have to be afraid of death? You ask most people, the number one fear that they have is probably death and standing in front of people and doing this. Speaking, public speaking. We don't have to fear death. Right? Paul can say, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? There is none. Because we have a certain future. And to that, Jesus comes in and he says, listen, time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life. and Believe the message. So what are you waiting for? some of you have heard that message over and over and over and you're not really sure what it means truthfully you can figure that out later but I'm just telling you right now that it's not easy I'm not going to promise you a rose garden it's hard to follow Jesus because he demands a lot but there's no better way to live our lives under his authority Second response that we need to make is how do I respond to the invitation then to follow Jesus? To join him on mission, because that's really his invitation. To call to discipleship, to having a wholehearted commitment to following Jesus, to submitting to his rule and reign in our lives. I had a friend that I was working with during the summers, and I was already in seminary. And we talked a lot about what it meant to give our life to Jesus, to follow him, to surrender to, to his will and his way. And, uh, and, and he finally came out and he says, Norm, I can't do it. And I said, well, you know, why? And he says, well, I could never do what you're doing. Because he knew I was studying to become a pastor. And I'm like, no, Brad, you got it all wrong. Like, he doesn't call us all to be pastors. He calls us all to follow him and then to allow whatever path we choose to 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 be shaped and informed by that so some of you he's called as teachers and electricians and lawyers and trades workers and home builders and whatever else but his primary calling is that we all follow him so it might cost us to follow him 
There might be sacrifices we have to make. Friends, what are we waiting for? And you know, Jesus inaugurated this wonderful sign of baptism as a way of communicating that we are under new management, that we're under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that we are actually willing to die to ourselves. So that's going down under the water if you've never witnessed a baptism here at TCC. But we're dying to ourself, and we're being raised to new life in Christ. And so it's a wonderful symbolism of what takes place uh, spiritually in our lives when we give our life to Jesus. We die to ourselves. And we're raised to new life. Friends, if you're committed to following Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then you're missing the opportunity to declare, this is in fact what I believe. So much of what we do as a church is for the purpose of of training and equipping and growing in our discipleship to become followers of Jesus. I told you earlier about the equip class that starts on Tuesday night. Living life to the full. Like, I'm excited about it just because I feel like there's always something that we need to learn and grow in our understanding of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? For some of you ladies that might be interested in refresh or studying a book, in his image, 10 ways God calls us to reflect his character. Friends, this is, this is what it means to be discipled. To be a disciple of Jesus is that we come together in the company of others and we learn and we grow and we we encourage one another then to live out these principles in in our everyday lives. So those are the two questions. What's my response ultimately to the message of Jesus? And secondly, how do I respond to his invitation to follow him? What is that going to look like in your life? What is it that that you need to build into your everyday practices. You know, I have a, a formula that I follow, and it, it seems redundant at times, but, but right after becoming quiet before the Lord, the very first thing I ask Him is, God, show me my sin. Show me where I'm out of alignment with, with your will and your ways. I hate it. Because every time there's something to confess, to bring myself back into alignment. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they followed right away, immediately, at once, no excuses. They were all in. They left everything they had, everything they knew. Even in James and John's case, they left their father behind. But they embarked on this incredible journey with Jesus that we're going to see unfold over these coming weeks. And so how is Jesus calling you to respond to his message and to his invitation to follow him? Now, if you know the answers to those questions, then friends, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of Jesus' message. When we're just reminded that the time is up, that God's kingdom is here, represented in the person of Jesus, that we have the opportunity to make him Lord of our lives, 
and give him full control. And so that requires a change of our life and repentance and a belief that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the Son of God, who lived a sinless life but paid the penalty for our sin so that we might have everlasting life in the, in the life to come, but that we might have abundant life in our, in our present reality. Father, I don't know where each of, our at, each of us this morning are at in this journey, but I pray that you would meet us exactly there and that you would speak into our lives in a way that is undeniable and clear and that we might take the next step to either receive your message or to accept your invitation to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.